If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we have quite a treat. We're joined by a friend of mine, Kevin Leonard, who is a lender with Ready Capital based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. So we have a good bit of history with Kevin. He he uh, sourced our our debt for our last two large multifamily uh, projects. I, I had the honor of, of having lunch with him and spending some time with him the last time I was visiting our, our Rock Hill deal when we were in Charlotte a few weeks ago. And uh, I heard Kevin on another podcast and, and he had just done such a beautiful job of breaking down commercial debt on large multifamily properties in a simple way. It's always been a blind spot for me. And, and I just loved it. And so I, I, I reached out to him and I said, hey, can you come do that for our listeners? So this welcome to Multifamily Debt 101 by Kevin Leonard. So Kevin, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Sterling. It's nice to be with you again um, and uh, look forward to seeing where the conversation takes us. I know I've listened to a few of your other episodes and they've always been um, very interesting uh, and uh high quality guests with lots of good, useful information. Hope I can do the same today. Absolutely. So Kevin, we were chatting before we hit record, like I have such a bad habit of doing. And, and I mentioned that, you know, for me, um, you know, in my single family business, I know everything there is to know about commercial debt and, and all the different lenders and all the different brokers and where it comes from and what the terms are. And I can recite it in my sleep. And then when we look at these large multifamily projects, maybe it, um, that's just not the seat that I filled, right? Because we typically attack these bigger deals in teams and some of my partners, you know, that you deal with more frequently than me handle that conversation. So I just, I've always felt like it was a blind spot for me. And I hear, you know, the conversations, I'm sitting in on the meetings and I hear term terminology that's just different than I'm accustomed to using. So can you start off by giving us, like I said, large multifamily debt one-on-one, the rundown, what we need to know, where it comes from, what the differences are, and uh, maybe some terminology that, that we might not be familiar with if we're just accustomed to buying single family houses. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with just a basic understanding of where the property is uh, in its life cycle and it, the status of its ability to generate income. Uh, and the term that is most frequently used for a property that is generating sufficient income to, to service debt uh, and has a, a sufficient occupancy level is called a stabilized property. Okay. And let's just stick with multifamily for now. Um, and, and usually what a lender wants to see in order to be able to determine whether or not to, to deem a property stabilized, uh, and that also kind of ties in with the type of loan itself, um, would be a, a property where the occupancy level is at least 90%. So let's say you got 100 units, you want to see that you've got at least 90 of those units rented and tenants are paying rent. Um, and, and so if you're at 90% occupancy for the last three months, 90 days, so 90 for 90 is kind of a, a little um, catchphrase that, that refers to a stabilized multifamily asset. 
then that's going to be a, a, a metric that a lot of lenders and agencies, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, um, want to see in order to kind of make the property in their eyes worthy of considering for a permanent loan. Okay, so stabilized property will give you a good shot at being in a permanent loan. A unstabilized or a value add property, which is what we've worked on together so far, is a property where either the occupancy is below 90% or there are significant changes that need to take place with the property that could be, that those changes could relate to either the physical and aesthetic appearance of the property and condition of the property, or it could mean that the, uh, the rents that the tenants are paying are significantly under market. So you're planning on turning over the rent roll a good bit in the coming year or two to be able to get rents up to market levels. So that would be considered a property that is not stabilized. Um, so stabilized, not stabilized, kind of two different viewpoints of where a property sits in its life cycle. And then um, the under the financing that goes with each of those two would be a permanent loan or maybe a bridge loan, okay? So permanent loan would be typically a loan of five years or longer. So five, seven, and 10 years are the most frequently utilized loan terms. And by term here, I'm talking about from originate the time period from origination until the maturity date. The amortization schedule is a separate piece of the equation. So let's say you're looking at a permanent loan opportunity. You wanna lock in your interest rate for fixed, fixed rate for a long period of time. So that's another element of a permanent loan is you typically have a fixed interest rate. A bridge loan, and I know I'm going to be kind of jumping around a little bit, but it's nice mm -hmm. to, and I think helpful to be able to put the two concepts side by side to compare them as we're moving through the conversation uh, and jump in with questions anytime you want, because heck, it's your show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so permanent loan, stabilized property, fixed interest rate, long-term fixed rate financing unstabilized property or a property that's in transition or opportunistic or value add, variable rate, floating rate, shorter term, typically two to three year term with maybe with some extensions going on. And the permanent loan typically is going to be an amortizing loan from day one, unless you can negotiate to add in some interest only period. The bridge loan or Floating rate loan is typically going to be interest only for that loan term. So just, you know, side again, side by side comparison, different tools financing for different situations and different objectives. So does that make sense so far? Absolutely. So a couple of questions that our, our listeners might have. First one, why is the bridge loan interest only? What's the benefit of that? Well, for the, the first things that come to my mind, um, actually, I've never actually had anybody ask that question. Um, but I think the, the obvious answer is well, the, the payments. The, the, the best way that I can think of to describe as to why a, a bridge loan would typically be interest only is that you want to give the borrower the best chance of success. And so 
while the property is in transition, such as when renovations are being done and or occupancy, you want to harmonize the debt service with the cash flow available to service the debt to the degree possible. Um, and you're I, the, behind the bridge loan is the idea of improving the property from a physical condition and aesthetic appearance perspective and from an operational management perspective and quality of tenant perspective. So you enter into that bridge loan with the expectation that the time, effort, and capital that you put into the property will result in higher rents by the time the loan matures in two to three years. So you're going into it with that end in mind, with that objective. So it just kind of ties together the, the tool and the business plan. You want those to be in sync with one another. Uh, for a permanent loan, um, you're already stabilized and you're probably hoping to get bump ups in rent on an annual basis as your tenant renews or you replace them with new leases and new tenants. But going into the loan day one, the lender is expecting to get paid back at maturity based on the amount that's outstanding at that point in time, but also over the life of the loan, the term of the loan through normal amortization. So again, it's just trying to harmonize the purpose of the loan with the structure of the financing. So what type of terms and rates are available with the two different types of loans? Um, sure. LTV, LTC, interest rate. What do those look like in both scenarios? Okay. Um, the um, Looking at a, a permanent loan, and here for today, I'm just going to talk primarily about uh, small balance loan. It could change six times before we air, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, the um, uh, the Freddie Mac small balance loan uh, currently and today is May 12, 2022. Um, rates on quotes that I just sent out within the last day on deals here in the Carolinas, for example. Um, we're right around four, between 480 and 5%, 4.8% to 5.0%. 5, 5 and the the variation in that uh, interest rate is going to relate primarily to how much leverage, how high up the LTV stack you go, and how low you go on the debt service coverage ratio. So those two things move with one another, typically. Higher leverage, you're typically going to have lower debt service coverage ratio. And we can get into a discussion of what that means as well, since that might not necessarily be a term or nomenclature that folks that focus on single family residential are that familiar with. Sure. Uh, so, but pressing pause on that for a moment, coming back to comparison to the bridge loan space for our uh, bridged agency product, our small balance bridge. And for us, small balance means one to seven and a half million dollars, okay? And that is right in the sweet spot of where you guys have been operating with us on your deals, uh, both in Newton and Rock Hill. Um, but most recent quote I sent out on a, uh, a bridge loan for a multifamily value add opportunity was right around 4.5% on a floating rate basis. That's the spread over the underlying index. And now we're using SOFR. We used to use LIBOR, the London Interbank Offer Rate. 
uh, as the floating rate index. And LIBOR no longer exists in the commercial lending world. And we're using SOFR, which is an acronym that stands for the uh, Secured Overnight Funding Rate. Basically, it's, it's LIBOR, but in a different concept and different methodology for calculating what banks are lending to one another at. Okay, so we won't get hung up on LIBOR and SOFR. That's really irrelevant. But it's an underlying floating rate index on top of which the spread for a variable rate loan is added. And so every month, we're going to look at what is SOFR, and we're going to add our spread to it, and that's your interest rate for the coming month, okay? With the, the permanent loan, the, the agency loan, um, that's going to stay fixed for the entire length of your loan, okay? So be it five, seven, or 10 years when we originate and close that loan, it's locked, it's fixed, it's not going to change. You're going to pay that same uh, monthly coupon every month. Hopefully your income goes up and your expenses stay you know, level as much as you can. Uh, of course, that's a moving target these days as well. Sure. So can we go back to debt service coverage ratio for a minute? Yes. Clearly yes. define that term for our listeners. Yes. Debt service coverage ratio is... Um, Let's, let's take, for example, your typical fixed rate agency loan. The, minimum, the, the lender is going to, and Freddie and Fannie are going to require that you have a minimum debt service coverage ratio of 1.25 or better. And what that means is that the net operating income, which is your income minus your expenses before debt service, um, let's use numbers as an example. Let's say your income minus your operating expenses before servicing the debt is $125,000. And if you're required by your lender to maintain at least a 1.25 debt service coverage ratio, that means the maximum loan amount that that $125,000 NOI, net operating income, can support under those criteria from the lender is a $100,000 annual mortgage payment. So monthly times 12 is your annual debt service amount. So in this example that I just gave you, if your income, let's say that's $250,000, your total rents and other income from the property that it generates is $250,000. And let's say your expenses, property taxes, insurance, management, maintenance, Gen, uh, utilities, uh, general administrative expense, and replacement reserves. If those all sum up to $125,000, your net operating income would be your 250 income minus your 125 expenses, resulting in $125,000 of net operating income. NOI is the most frequently used um, term of art or, or name for that bottom line number that's available to service the debt. So in this case, $125,000. And if, if you multiply your debt, $100,000 times 125, that's, that's how you kind of back into, if you will, the maximum loan amount that that property will support based on the in-place income and existing expenses. Awesome. So what other, what other metrics do we track in commercial lending for mm -hmm. the health of a loan? 
Sure, sure. Um, so another metric that is frequently used um, in determining the maximum loan amount would be a loan to value ratio. So that would be, you know, your, your, once you get an appraisal done, let's say the appraised value is $4 million. And if the maximum loan to value is 75%, then the maximum loan amount would be $3 million. So 4 million times 0.75 is 3 million. Make sense? Sure. Okay. So you have to remember though, that we're going to be looking in any commercial real estate lender is going to be looking at both of those metrics at the same time. And your loan is going to be an, a, an amount that would be the lesser of 75% loan to value subject to a 1.25x debt service coverage ratio. So you can't lose sight of either of those metrics because both of them play into what is your maximum loan amount. So you can't, you can't just say, well, it's, you know, I can do a 75% loan in this market, LTV maximum loan in this market. Well, that depends on whether or not you've got sufficient income in that property, net operating income to support the loan amount that a 75% LTV would get you. Got it. Okay. So, Go on. So, so that's those. Those are two things. The two um, most relevant metrics in a permanent loan situation. Now, if we're talking about a bridge loan, where we're looking at variable rate deals, and we're looking at um, you know what are we comfortable with as a lender, and what are the metrics that come into play on those types of deals, mm-hmm. then. It's a, the, the, the metrics are, as, as it relates to um, the income are a little bit different. LTV comes into play just, just as it does on a permanent loan, but we also look at loan to cost as a relevant metric as well. So when you're looking at a bridge loan, a property that needs improvement um, in order to be able to create value, which is why you're buying it in the first place, you're going to create value by improving the property condition, improving the quality of the tenants and their, the income that comes from those tenants and reducing expenses. Uh, then it, it, we're typically going to look at a deal where day one income NOI divided by the loan amount that we're initially funding needs to produce at least about a five. Lately, our, our metrics have gone up a little bit with rising rates, but uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, typical metrics on a bridge loan, our small bridge loan, would be that we would require at least a 5% debt yield day one when we close. And we'll come to a definition of debt yield and some examples in just a minute. And then at least an 8% debt yield when it's stabilized, when you're done with the project and you're ready to either sell it or refinance into a permanent loan. Okay, so we, we kind of start with the end in mind on the, on the bridge loans, okay? Sure. We, we want to see um, that there's value creation going on here. By buying the property, let's say you, you pay $2 million for it, and we've got a day one debt yield requirement of 
5%. Okay, so we want to know that our loan is that the property before, let's assume that you get hit by a Mack truck, okay? And we have to step into your shoes, okay? Which we don't want to happen. Um, but we want to know that the property as it sits when we close will generate sufficient income to at least pay the interest only debt service that we've got, maybe even plus a little bit of a margin. So if our spread is 450 or so, so our, our interest rate, our interest expense for the year on a $2 million loan will be $180,000. No, $90,000, excuse me. Yep. $2 million loan, 4.5%, $90,000. We want to see a 5% debt yield, okay? So that means that that property, income minus expenses, generates $100,000 day one. You're buying it because you can you think you can get it to $200,000 in a couple of years by adding um, better landscaping, better uh, exterior amenities, uh, improving the conditions of the units on the inside. Uh, so we're going to loan you the money to buy it and money to fix it up. Okay. So day one, we want to see at least a 5% debt yield so that that 4.5% coupon is paid by the property. We loan you the money to do the improvements. You do the improvements, you drive up rents. At the end, we want to see that the property can generate at least 8% debt yield on the fully funded loan amount. So your initial loan amount plus the CapEx dollars, that would equal your fully funded loan amount. And so after you're done with the renovations and turn over the rent roll a few times, you have better, better tenants paying higher rates because it's a nicer property. You've, you've done the hard work, the heavy lift. And so you should be able to generate now at least 160,000 of NOI as opposed to 100,000 when you move, when you bought it. So you, you, you do the hard work, you improve the property, income goes up. Okay. Making sense so Absolutely. Okay. So th those are, and, and let me, let me come back to debt yield as, to describe what that metric means to us, the lender and you as the borrower. Uh, debt yield is simply the amount of net operating income divided by the loan amount outstanding. Okay, so it's kind of a stand-in for debt service coverage ratio, but right. in my opinion, it's really just as easy to calculate, if not easier, because you don't have to back into what's your loan amount. You just know, okay, NOI divided by loan amount. And if you're targeting a certain you know, loan to cost, typically we'll look at loan to cost maximums of 75%, mm -hmm. similar to loan to value. Sometimes we do loan to cost and loan to value on the bridge loans. Well, actually we do that on all of them um, because we wanna make sure that we're taking into account the planned capital expenditures. So our loan to cost would take into account purchase price, plus your capex and, and, and a ratio there. Make sense so far? Absolutely. Okay. So th those are some of the um, very important metrics that are part of the discussion and analysis by both the borrower and the lender when sizing up a deal on the front end. Got it. So <clears throat> a couple other questions I have around, you know, somebody's trying to get into underwriting these type of projects and, and they don't know what numbers to plug in. W one of the things 
I want to ask about earlier, you mentioned you quoted a property in the Carolinas and this was the rate. Does the rate vary from market to market? And does the rates vary from asset class to asset class? And, you know, is there, is there a, a matrix somewhere that's, uh, you know, um, a class asset in Miami can expect this rate on permanent and this rate on bridge, whereas a C class property in Hunts, not Huntsville, you know, some other obscure city, you know, I'm thinking Huntsville, Texas, which is an obscure city, but then you think Huntsville, Alabama, which is not, you know, so I mean, you get where I'm going with this. I, I do indeed. Yes. And, and there are um, uh, different metrics and different rates that apply to different. Typically it's, it's more market driven uh, as opposed to necessarily class of the property. Um, but there's also uh, some subjective element uh, that lenders apply where uh, class A properties, there's a lot more competition for those properties, both by borrowers and buyers that want to acquire them and lenders that want those properties as their collateral. So they'll lean in a little bit on, on the deal terms for higher quality assets in higher quality markets. So the rates get a little bit skinnier. Um, the debt service coverage ratios uh, get tighter, meaning you can afford more loan or it's less, the, the underwriting is um, just easier to qualify if you're in a bigger market. And the rationale there is if, if you're comparing a Miami, Florida, which Freddie Mac would consider to be a top, one of their top markets and Huntsville, Texas, which they would consider to be a very small market. They're also thinking about it from the standpoint of, if we have to step into the borrower's shoes, how deep and broad is the pool of potential buyers for that property if we wind up foreclosing? And how much of a haircut are we gonna take? So therefore, how much, how much more aggressive can we afford to be in those top markets? or how much more conservative do we need to be to make up for that larger potential loss due to a smaller pool of buyers and sellers in small markets. So uh, to, to give you the Freddie Mac criteria off the top of my head, they, they've got four different market tiers, okay? So the most attractive and the largest market tiers are top markets like Miami, New York, DC, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and a few others that are, interestingly enough, um, they're, they're not on the coast. Salt Lake City, Minneapolis, Dallas, Chicago, I think round out most of Freddie Mac's top markets. And in those markets, they will um, entertain loan requests up to a maximum of 80% loan to value and require a minimum 1.20 debt service coverage ratio, okay? Mm -hmm. If you come down to the next tier in the Freddie Mac market tier rankings, that would be called in the Freddie Mac nomenclature, a standard market, not top, not small, which is next, but a standard market, the maximum loan to value ratio there is a 80, again, 80% 80 loan to value max on purchases and a 1.25. So it goes up a little bit on that metric compared to a top market of 120. So 1.25x DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, in a standard market. 
then when you come down a notch in size to a small market defined by Freddie Mac, the maximum loan to value ratio for purchases is 75%. So it comes down from 80 to 75. The minimum debt service coverage ratio in a small market is 1.30 compared to a standard, which was 125. So you're now at 130. And then coming down yet another notch to a very small market, which would probably be your Huntsville, Texas market. You got a 75% max on the purchase subject to a 1.40 debt service coverage ratio. So just looking at the DSCRs from top to very small, you go from 120 to 125 to 130 to 140. So you can see that the underwriting, the required income is becoming more conservative as the market gets smaller. Got it. Okay. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. And and when we're looking at bridge loans, we approach it from a similar perspective. Our going in debt yield, which is typically the most relevant constraint on sizing a loan, uh, typically starts at a you know five percent debt yield going in day one at closing for a top market, and maybe we go to a five and a half in a standard market and a six and a half in a small market and in a very small market, maybe 7% or six, 675, if we're gonna do that deal at all. So our, our required metrics, again, similar to Freddie Mac, but on the bridge loans, we want to be a little bit more conservative as the market gets smaller. Got it. So it sounds like the, the most, most of the qualification for the loans and the rates and the LTVs and everything centers around the performance of the property and the income, but that's yep. not the whole equation. Right. So like, you know, Billy Bob who, who works at the grocery store, can't just go get one of these loans. Right. So what qualifications outside of the property do we need to take into consideration when we're trying to get these larger loans like this? Billy Bob needs to have experience and financial wherewithal. The experience requirements, so for example, for Freddie Mac, um, they like to see that their sponsors, that would be the person that's signing on the loan, and we can come in a few minutes to sponsors, partner, investors, um, and recourse. We can talk about that in a little bit too, so don't let me forget about that. Um, but uh, Billy Bob, Mr. Borrower sponsor needs to have a net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount that's being requested. So assets minus liabilities equals net worth. So that needs to equal or be greater than the, lo the loan amount that's requested. And he needs to have post-closing liquidity equal to or greater than ballpark nine to 10 months of debt service. So principal and interest debt service. Um, an easier rule of thumb, if you don't know what the debt service is going to be, generally speaking, if, if you're looking at uh, post-closing liquidity, it'd be, it'd be safe to say 10% of the loan amount as your post-closing liquidity should get you over the hump, okay? okay. Experience requirement. Uh, Freddie Mac wants to see that you have owned multifamily property and by multifamily here, we're talking about a property that has five units or more. You can't take five single families and add them together and call that a multifamily. Um, they want, 
it's it's quirky. I know personally, I think that's one of those criteria that yeah, maybe maybe there should be a little bit more flexibility there. And we can talk also about exceptions to these requirements. But baseline requirement is uh, at least three multifamily properties over the last five years, each of those having five units or more, or they've owned the subject property for five years or more. So within the last three years, you have owned at least three properties, all multifamily, or you've owned the subject property, if this is, for example, a refinance for the last five years. So one property for five years being the subject property or three years, three properties within the last two years. Okay. So a little bit deeper dive into that specific question. Uh Um, When you say own the property, like, I mean, just partial ownership, for example, you know, uh, we own, I own a portion of Noonan. I own a portion of Ocala. If I owned a portion of another one, would I qualify at, at that point for the having three ownership in three different properties at that point? I think, yes. Um, I, I think part of the hedging that I'm doing on, on, on that aspect of it is what is your role within the entity that is the borrower on each of those properties? if there is a loan at all, okay? So if say, for example, there's you and four other partners, just picking a number out of the air, uh, (laughs) and each of you have signed on to what they call the carve out guarantees, um, then basically you're responsible if something goes wrong and there's been any sort of misrepresentation or fraud. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, Generally speaking, you're, it's a non-recourse loan with Freddie Mac, unless there have been misrepresentations or other types of um, acts that have triggered the carve-out guarantees. Okay, um, so if you have been a name sponsor in in that capacity on those on those deals, then you would qualify. That would that would check the box for you from an ownership and experience perspective. Awesome. Recourse and non-recourse and then mm-hmm. sponsorship and ownership structure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, recourse. Basically, that means if the if there's a default on the loan, can the lender come after your personal assets? Okay. Um, generally speaking, the loans that we do, uh, with certain exceptions, are non-recourse, meaning we're not going to come after you personally. We're just going to come after the property, which is why there's so much of a focus in our underwriting, our analysis on the front end on the property's ability to support the loan request. So we're looking primarily to the property to repay the loan. So if, you know, just the world, you know, goes crazy and nobody pays the rent, as long as you've held up your end of the deal, according to the terms of the loan agreement, as the manager of the property and the borrower, then we're not going to come after you personally, okay? Now, there are certain things that one can do that would move you from a non-recourse into a recourse position, such as misrepresentations, fraud. Bad, bad boy um, carve-outs. Bad, those are called bad boy carve-outs, yes. And it relates to have you um, done the right things to maintain the condition of the property and to operate the property and to do the reporting in a manner that's prescribed by the loan agreement. So if you adhere to the terms and conditions of the loan agreement, then you're not gonna be in default 
from a you know, compliance perspective. So therefore the, the loan would remain non-recourse. If however, you don't hold up your end of the deal as to what you agreed to in the loan agreement, then that might trigger the recourse carve outs and that puts you in a different bucket. Awesome. So real quick, I want to shift gears before we get to the radio round. I want to, I want to shift gears from, uh, from multifamily one-on-one over to uh, Kevin's crystal ball. And I've been asking all of my, my guests lately, you know, obviously we got some crazy stuff going on in the market with rates and, and, and just, you know, from a lender's perspective, what do you see, the next year or two looking like how are cap rates going to respond to the rising interest rates are the rising interest rates going to continue to to rise what is the buyer pool is going to look like what are you seeing on your side uh, the one thing that i can say with certainty is things will fluctuate uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, honestly i wish i knew um i i'm just doing my best to keep my head above water and and process the deals that come onto my radar day in and day out. Um, yeah, I think the what we're seeing in um, the capital markets is that the expectation is that short-term rates will continue to rise in the next six to 12 months. Um, you know, where, where they top out, who knows? I, I think if I were placing my chips on the table, I would probably bet that uh, short-term rates would probably top out around two, maybe two and a half percent. But, you know, there's an election next year. You know? yeah. who, who knows really and truly is the best answer. Um, I think the um, what's really going to be interesting to see over the next year or so is uh, for borrowers that have borrowed money on a floating rate basis, if they haven't been able to execute their business plan in a timely fashion, and they're still working on property improvements and rates continue to creep up and their monthly payment continues to creep up, will they then be upside down on their properties? So who knows? Uh, They've also got the, the benefit that they've got typically, and you might've seen this in some of your deals as well, is that rents keep on going up as well. Right. So even if rates are going up and you're on a variable rate loan, so therefore your payment is going up, hopefully you're managing your properties well enough or your property manager is managing them well enough that you can capture rent increases to offset those rate increases. So, uh, you know, I can kind of see things, you know, rates creeping up like this, but rents creeping up like this. So hopefully you'll be able to still maintain your margins uh, and also manage your expenses. Focus on that like a laser. Um, and, and make sure you've got good talent on the leasing side of things and good marketing of your properties to make sure that, and, and, and good management and maintenance on the properties so that people want to come live there. Keep the expenses and really, low and, really and the rent's high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it, it's just, it's going to be an interesting year. Lots of things are moving um, and, you know, I, th- I think the main thing that I'm trying to convey to people right now is if you've got a deal that's in the works, um, get it tied up, get get your deal signed up, get through your due diligence process as quickly as you can and get it closed. Uh, get the thing funded before things change again. Absolutely. 
So real quick for our radio round, because we're coming up on time. I just got three questions and I, and you're familiar because you listen to the show. Um, not like all of our guests. I, I'm picking on some of our, my partners. Um, first question is, what's your favorite book? My favorite book uh, is, is um, The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I, I've also read a bunch of books about real estate and finance, uh, but I, I answer this question that way because when I was growing up in elementary school, junior high school, high school, um, I was not much of a reader. I read because I was compelled to uh, by my teachers. Uh, it wasn't my idea of a, way, a fun way to spend a Saturday afternoon. I'd much rather be out swimming and you know, shooting BB guns and stuff like that. Uh, but when I got to college, my roommate, my freshman year, was a huge reader. And he handed me a copy of The Hobbit. He said, here, I think you'd like this. And sure enough, I did. And that was what spurred me on to uh, really develop a, a love of uh, good writing, good stories. And that has, I think, been very helpful to me in life, uh, just developing an affinity for reading. And that was what did it for me. And so um, I've got you know, two stepkids. My wife brought two wonderful kids into our marriage. And I don't really care what they read as long as they read. Right. But at the same time, I'm not going to push them to do a lot of reading now if they don't want to, because I was kind of a late bloomer on that one myself. Um, so very long answer to a very short question. What is your, uh, what is your favorite quote? Um, guy named Dan Sullivan, uh, I believe is strategic coach. Um, I listened to a, a set of his tapes a long time ago that my, uh, a good friend of mine gave me. And he said he has what he calls the four habits of referability. And that four things, show up on time, do what you say you're going to do, finish what you start, and say please and thank you along the way. You do those four things, most things will, will do just fine. You'll do, you'll do well in life if you do those four things. Awesome. And what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Um, I think probably my favorite thing is to go hiking. Um, my, my boy is uh, in scouts, so I've gotten to do a lot of hiking up in the mountains in Western North Carolina over the years. And my daughter is not really that much of a in the woods kind of hiker. So the closest I've been able to do with her is get her out on the golf course. So that's a different form of hiking. So those two together with those two people are among my two favorite things. Awesome. And how can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? Uh, best way to get in touch with me is uh, by phone and by email. Uh, email is probably the best just because uh, sometimes schedules don't sync up, but I'm a fiend about responding in a timely fashion. Uh, that'd be kevin.leonard at readycapital.com. You can also find me on our company's website, readycapital.com. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining the show. I appreciate it. I learned a lot and I know our listeners did too. And I definitely uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you, Sterling. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.